Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to God's Planning. We're gathering together for a meditation on the readings for the fifth Sunday of Easter. I am Father Patrick Briscoe, and I'm here in Providence. And joining me from Washington via the miracle of internet telephony, as we're fond of saying, our fathers Jacob Bertrand Jancic and Gregory Maria Pine. We are continuing to do these lexios, uh, you know, as long as as long as uh, there's a great need for them. Some places are beginning to open up, and we hope that your return to the sacraments um, will be swift and efficient and delightful and all of those things. Uh, we will continue for our part to uh, to produce these episodes uh, again as long as as long as we think people are taking advantage of them. It's really a project we wanted to undertake to help people pray in times of corona in uh, during the pandemic uh, while, there's, while there's a need. So um, with that, I'll pray the collect for the mass. Almighty ever-living God, constantly accomplish the paschal mystery within us, that those you are pleased to make new in holy baptism may, under your protective care, bear much fruit and come to the joys of life eternal. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All right. I'll lead off here with our first reading, which is taken from the Acts of the Apostles. As the number of disciples continued to grow, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the twelve called together the community of the disciples and said, It is not right for us to neglect the word of God to serve at table. Brothers, select from among you seven reputable men filled with the spirit and wisdom whom we shall appoint to this task, whereas we shall devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The proposal was acceptable to the whole community, so they chose Stephen, a man filled with faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas of Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. The word of God continued to spread, and the number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly. Even a large group of priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to Thanks God. Thanks be to God. This section from the Acts of the Apostles is, is kind of unique if you look at the readings that we've had. Our first reading through these weeks of Easter have, have been from the Acts of the Apostles. And if you remember back, we've had readings um, that, have, that have highlighted in different ways, particularly Peter's preaching of the resurrection of, um, of Christ's um, death and resurrection. But now today, in the, on this fifth Sunday of Easter, we have... Um, a look into these into the early Christian communities, um, really, a, a, I guess what we could call kind of the second ordination in, in that we have recorded. So the first being the, the institution of the priesthood at the Last Supper, uh, and now the the ordination of um, by the laying of hands of these seven men to the to the diaconate. Um, and I think what this what this shows or what this reveals to us is that as um, time passes from the point of the resurrection, the church begins to take shape. Um, it, it's not as if Christ 
in his in his earthly life and his earthly mission sort of set down this is what the the sort of institution of the church is going to look like that took time for that to develop but we see that development the existence of the church um immediately and then the development of what that of what that looks like so these these seven men ordained to the diaconate by the laying of hands the same way in which men are ordained to the diaconate and to the priesthood some two thousand years later that act of the bishop laying hands on on the head of these men um are ordained primarily to serve at table we hear primarily to serve at table and this is juxtaposed um position next to the reality of what then the priests or the apostles are continuing to do. These men are, these men are commissioned to serve, particularly the, the sort of the corporal or the material needs of the faithful, where we have another set, the presbyters, the priests, the bishops at this time, the, the, the apostles who are serving the spiritual needs, who are praying, um, who are worshiping, who are leading the sacrifice. Um, and you sort of, as, as these things begin to distill, we begin to sort of have our first form of, of ecclesiology, of what the church is, who the church is. I think what's really important here for us to recognize and to meditate on is this is the, say, this is, this is the way in which Christ, through the Spirit, has desired to dispense his mercy to the faithful through the ministers of the church. This isn't some sort of um, like medieval accretion. This isn't some sort of like modern um, sort of addition to to Christ Church, but it is really um, the foundation of Christ Church on earth that He chose men first, the apostles, and now through their their laying of hands on on I don't know if we we could say sort of the next generation or the next batch of ordained clergy in the church to to serve the needs of the faithful even from the earliest days. Um, there, there's a real beauty in this because it's it's the gift that Christ has left for us um, in in as in as much as we are able to access the grace of his of his death and resurrection through through the ministry of the ordained uh, clergy of the church. Um, so j- just an interesting thing to kind of witness again the ordination at, you know some two thousand years later of, of this first batch of deacons uh to to the to the rank of of the clergy uh in the church i was reading an op-ed in the new york times today about um the future of christianity and the author of this piece was declaring that the future of christianity is punk um and as disturbing as i find that because that aesthetic has zero appeal to me uh whatsoever i'm like i like uh, gothic not goth but gothic, and uh, I like uh, I, I like a sort of uh, a sort of established and professional and sp- smooth and um, graced uh, vision of the church. So none of these things. <laughs> I think Father Kirk is losing his mind here. None of none of these things are described as punk, right? Um, the the thing that was interesting to me though that I that I was really considering from this piece uh, the point the point that is striking is the suggestion that Christianity will continue to become more countercultural, and there's a way in which uh, it can be very tempting to say, like, "Wow, Christianity is more countercultural than it's ever been." And the simple fact of the matter is that Christianity has always been countercultural, in the sense that Christianity always requires um, the conformity of one's heart to Christ and to the gospel rather than to the world. Right? So. 
um, the fact that the number of believers continues to spread, uh, this beautiful line that we hear in the Acts of the Apostles, the number of believers rather continues to grow, the gospel continues to spread. These, these, these sorts of ideas are the call that um, every age will require a new conformity uh, of every heart uh, to the gospel. And there's not a way in which our culture becomes um, absolutely animated by the gospel um, as if that, as if, as if there were no more work to be done. Um, it's always a work in progress and that, and that, uh, and that the gospel, um, the gospel will continue to require us to let go of the, the lower temptations of the lower passion, lower pursuits, um, which seem to animate um, human life uh, in, at some of, some of the broadest levels. Uh, so um, I guess uh, a point to draw out what Father Jacob Bertrand was suggesting and even to kind of tie in some of what Father Patrick suggests. Uh, I think it's fascinating that from the earliest ages of the church, we see differentiation within the mystical body. Uh, so most people listening to this, I imagine are American. And as Americans, we feel very passionately about equality. <clears throat> so we feel very strongly that we are equal under God uh, and in the civil order, and that if anyone should make a claim to being different, it's tantamount to a claim to being better and therefore elitist, uh, therefore, yeah, something that we find very repugnant. But again, from the early stages of the church, we find that the Lord is not about a work of making everyone equal or giving everyone the same things. Rather, he gives people different things in order that the body might be built up. Uh, so in St. Paul's language taken from 1 Corinthians uh, he describes us as many members of one body, but each occupying its place. Uh, so the eye does what eyes do, and the foot does what feet do, and the eye does not begrudge the foot that it cannot walk, nor does the foot begrudge the eye that it cannot see. And so we see here the presbyters are just kind of overwhelmed, uh, and that certain aspects of their life uh, in common are being neglected, and so that deacons need be appointed in order to attend to the needs. Uh, and here, it, it, it calls to mind for us, or it brings into focus the purpose for which there is differentiation. One, for the glory of God, but two, specifically, in this ecclesiological context, for service. So I think a lot of times when we talk about hierarchy or the hierarchy, we envision it in the way that we envision um, kind of like a business corporate structure. So, you know, there's like, you know, the minions, and then there's like the middle management, and then there's the, you know, the managers and the partners, and then the boss man. And the reason for which one should ascend the ranks is so that you can have prestige, so that you can lord it over, uh, so that you can enjoy benefits and perks. But I've heard the, the hierarchy of the church described in opposite fashion. So it's not that one you know, ascends to more and more plush ranks, but that one ought to descend closer and closer to the gates of hell uh, so as to do battle against you know, principalities and powers and in defense of the flock, uh, lest they perish. Um, so, the, you know, the, the purpose for which there's differentiation in the body is ultimately for the service of the people of God, so that each would have his or her spiritual and you know, material needs met uh, in such a way that we would come together and become yet more perfectly the body of Christ. Our second reading is from the first letter of St. Peter. Beloved, come to him a living stone, rejected by human beings, but chosen and precious in the sight of God, and like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it says in scripture, behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in it shall not be put to shame. 
Therefore, its value is for you who have faith. But for those without faith, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that will make people stumble and a rock that will make them fall. They stumble by disobeying the word as is their destiny. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, so that you may announce the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The word of the Lord. Thanks be, Thanks to, God. be to God. When I was a kid, the young and exciting parochial vicar at my uh, home parish was a priest named Father Michael Heinz. Um, Monsignor Heinz is now pretty well known and uh, as a retreat preacher and as a seminary professor. Anyway, in those days, uh, he was growing larger and larger, not just in life or in spirit, but physically. <laughs> he, was really, he was a really big guy. He has since lost a lot of weight and now he's very healthy. But he used to have this line um, and he would say, why, why would I be a tiny chapel of the Holy Spirit when my body can be a great basilica? And uh, I, I always thought that was hilarious. I thought it was a great line. Um, so the thing, the thing that that line captures, though, is that it's the truth of the matter that we're being built up into a spiritual edifice and that we do, in fact, have an option as to uh, the grandeur of our heart. Um, because as we discussed many times on this podcast, faith is ultimately an act of will. And it, it's expanded by, by subsequent acts, which uh, renew and feed and restore and nourish uh, that faith. So to build, to be built, to be built up into a great spiritual edifice um, requires the investment of oneself and requires, uh, requires one's own heart being given over again and again and again and again to this work, right? You know, if we, if we sit around all day eating bonbons, the spiritual house is not going to be built. Uh, <laughs> we, will, we will grow larger. But, but we will not grow larger in our capacity uh, to, receive, to receive divine grace. Uh, so if that is our goal, we have to take on acts um, that, that lead us to that. So th this is where, the, this is where the, practice, uh, the real practices of the spiritual life, uh, dedicated reading, prayerful meditation of scriptures, which we hope this Lexio Divina podcast episode, webisode series, mm. commentary, audio track, uh, which we, which we hope all of this engenders, right? Is is a is a prayerful consideration of scriptures. Okay, so lexio divina, meditative reading, meditative spiritual reading, of any kind, the daily recitation of the rosary, um, a regular habit of mental prayer, the evening examination of conscience. All these, all these basic practices in the spiritual life are ways that we're putting stone on top of stone and continuing to build up our hearts um, as a spiritual edifice. Christ, of course, is the cornerstone, and this is not the work that we can attend to without him. Um, he, he directs it. Not only is he the cornerstone, um, but he's the chief architect, the master, and the designer of the project. Um, the edifice must be built on him and be, be led by him and be completely reliant on him. Uh, but if we continue to ply ourselves at this work, uh, rather than lounging and ignoring it, and just wist, wist, wistfully hoping that someday my, my faith might be great and my heart will be, uh, my heart will abound in grace. Um, if we attend to this project, the Lord will, will really affect graces of consolation and of hope um, and strength of faith in our hearts. So I love that um, here, well, we're going to see, you know, in all of these readings, there's these elements of what it means to be the ecclesial body. 
Um, and here it's, you know, described as the spiritual house, but we see the purpose for which we are made in the ecclesial body. So we can think back to the book of Exodus. Uh, what is the reason for which Moses asks that the people be let go so that they can go out to the desert to worship? And here we are described as a spiritual house, uh, a kind of temple of the Holy Ghost, not only individually, you know, which we hear in 1 Corinthians 6, but corporately, that we are to be a worshiping people, uh, one, you know, one Christ, head and members, uh, worshiping the Father. And that's just what the liturgy affects in our life. And here it's described in terms of priesthood, right? So um, there's two uh, kinds of priesthood. There's the ministerial priesthood with which we are more accustomed, you know, to speak in terms of priesthood. Then there's the common priesthood of all believers. And you as a listener might gasp and think, wait a second, isn't that a Lutheran teaching? Um, so it's something that, that Martin Luther does use. It's in his lexicon, but it's also something that the church has in her vocabulary. We can think about like Lumen Gentium, right? This is in just like the first 10 paragraphs of Lumen Gentium. This is, uh, is described for us as a way by which to understand um, the peculiar kind of uh, dignity of the simply baptized, which is to say those members of the church who are not priests. So they have this threefold gift, uh, namely of being priests, prophets, and kings, uh, which is a share, a participation in uh, the threefold gift of Christ. So by baptism, for instance, we're given this baptismal character. By confirmation, we're given a further character. And those characters make us uh, participators, sharers in the priesthood of Christ, such that we can receive divine things and offer spiritual sacrifice so that we can offer worship. So each of us has um, a share in Christ's priesthood by virtue of the sacraments at work in our lives. And each of us is intended individually and corporately uh, to be temples of the Holy Ghost uh, and to offer, um, uh, to offer our priesthood in such a way as to, to worship the Lord and bring him glory. In, in the last lines here of, of, this section from St. Paul's letter where he sort of enumerates a few characteristics, one of those being the royal priesthood. He starts with, um, with the description of the faithful. He says, you are a chosen race. Um, as Father Gregory was, Gregory was saying with the, with, with the reading from Acts, there's, I think as, as sort of Americans where we, we like this sort of egalitarian kind of everybody's on the same playing field notion and, and having sort of, different different levels within things is a sort of hierarchy is kind of naturally we kind of push against that but throughout the scriptures that's that's clearly not the reality you know and and for those those of us who are baptized all of us who are baptized um we are chosen god has chosen chosen us and he's moved us and you know by his grace to receive the gifts of baptism and in that in, in virtue of that baptism that makes us the priest, prophet, and the king, it also makes us his son or his daughter. And, and that choosing is, is really important and really fundamental to our living the Christian life because um, we have to have the sort of, um, I don't know, the sort of boldness to recognize and to claim that for ourselves that, yes, I am a chosen son of God, or yes, I am a chosen daughter of Christ, and I have a claim on that. Not as if something like I can demand that that's my right, God has to give it to me, but because he's offered it. And when we, when we accept that offer of his life, um, when we claim that as our own and when we recognize that's, that, that's the foundation of our, of our identity, then that's, that changes the way in which we live. That enables us to function within, within the church, to serve within the church, um, to exercise our, our priesthood, whether that's common or ministerial, to offer worship to God. We can only do that first because he's chosen us. 
And if we lose sight of the reality that we are indeed chosen by the Father, we are the beloved of the Father, then we have nothing to stand on. The, the stones that we, you know, that Father Patrick was describing of building up, I mean, those without recognizing the reality, reality that, that Christ has chosen us, he's died for us, he is the cornerstone, we're building on sand. There's nothing to rely on. Uh, that, that reality of our, our being chosen, of our being chosen to share in divine life is, is the principle, is the point of, of everything that Christ has done and Christ is doing in our lives now. With that, let us turn now to the gospel. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Jesus said to his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You have faith in God, have faith also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If there were not, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and take you to myself so that where I am, you also may be. Where I am going, you know the way. Thomas said to him, Master, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, then you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Master, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you for so long a time, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who dwells in me is doing his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe because of the works themselves. Amen, amen, I say to you. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and will do greater ones than these because I am going to the Father. Okay, before we actually started recording the podcast, Father Patrick and Father Jacob Bertram were making fun of me for talking for too long. Um, so if I were like a good human being, I would be repentant and be very short right now, but I'm about to go to town. I think we were making fun of you for the words that you used too. Oh yeah, for the words. All right, so here we go. Here's a Shameless. long, yeah, here's a long disquisition with $5 words. Woo, okay, so. Here, the Lord describes spiritual adoption in terms of abiding in the Father's house. Um, I once uh, was on a retreat preached by Father James Brent uh, called the Father's House Retreat. And the whole point of the retreat is to describe spiritual adoption, which is to say our share, our partaking in the life of grace. And he used this passage as a way by which to illumine that reality. And he highlights that the Father's house is... It's not just like a, a way of speaking about heaven in vague terms. Uh, rather, it describes a sociological reality in ancient Israel. So a father's house is like the closest thing to their word for family, but it's not what we understand by a nuclear family. It's the oldest you know, male and his wife in a kind of kinship circle. And then it's all of his sons and their wives, all of their sons and their wives, and all of their sons and their wives. And then all of their slaves, cattle, you know, their different 
crops, fields, possessions, etc. So it'd be a group of like 100 to 150 persons. Okay, so you have the tribe, and then you have the clan, and then you have the father's houses. And the father's house was the source of many, many good things. So first, wealth. The only way to come into wealth was by inheritance. So like the scriptures lament the plight of widows and orphans because they no longer pertain to a father's house. Also the source of justice. The father settled these kind of petty cases um, by making determinations between those different members of the family. Also, it was a source of defense or protection uh, because the father's house was like your local militia. You can think of the story of David, for instance, in this regard, when they go up against the Philistines, Jesse brings all his sons. There you have it. Uh, but it's also a source of meaning. Okay, so like you were introduced into the story of the life of Israel by the father of the father's house. Um, he would kind of initiate you into the covenant and the rich history, uh, which kind of bred in you a sense of God's loving kindness. And then also it was a source of love. So like each, you know, firstborn son, for instance, would be redeemed. You take him to the temple, you'd offer him to the Levitical priest and the Levitical priest would say, do you claim this son as your own? And the father would say, I do claim him. And then the Levitical priest would say, then, then pay the price. And you would offer like five shekels in return. So each child would know that he had been purchased at a price. Um, so it's like fascinating because in, you know, contemporary Roman and Greek literature, you have a lot of father killing, but in Hebrew literature, you have none. Okay. So the father's house is this really thick, um, substantial ecclesiological, uh, like sociological unit. And it was a place where you inherited wealth and justice and defense and love and meaning. Uh, so when the Lord says, like, I have a father and I have a father's house, uh, he's not speaking in vague or ill-defined terms. He's saying that, like, you are going to be incorporated into a communion, which is abiding, something that you recognize, but which is transposed into a spiritual register, which is far more than you could ask or imagine, except my illuminating your minds and emboldening your hearts to desire it and to pursue it. So in his father's house, there is wealth, wealth beyond compare, the inheritance of the saints of light. There is defense, you know, because he commands his angels, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Um, there is justice in as much as his claims will be vindicated and his resurrection is the proof. Uh, there is meaning in as much as the Lord tells his story in us and makes sense of our lives in a way in which, uh, yeah, is kind of beyond our, our imagination. And there is love, a love abiding, namely the very life of grace, which through charity, um, you know, pours into our hearts the very love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whereby we can cry, Abba, Father. So the Lord has a Father. He has a Father's house. It is something into which we are welcomed. It is something that begins now on earth. The line that really kind of grabs my attention, and uh, perhaps because I heard somebody preach on it just recently, a Dominican, but I'm going to kind of steal his ideas. But as I was told, you cannot plagiarize the Holy Spirit. So <laughs> now it's mine. Uh, but is, is, is the line towards the beginning of the gospel. Um, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and take you to myself so that where I am, you also may be. It's a take you to myself. Um, I, we, we often have this idea that, that we go to God or that we go to Christ or that we approach Christ. And there, in, in a sense, there's a reality there because you know, we're free in that and, and we have to move, cooperate with grace and move. But um, this idea that, you know, uh, that either we go to him or that, you know, Christ descends and, and, and condescends and comes to us. Um, but there's a beauty here in the way that our Lord speaks in the Gospel of John, that he is going to take us to himself. 
um, that he's going to move us and bring us into the bosom of the Father, into, this, into the Father's house. And we see this, if we look back through the Gospels, um, it's particularly the Gospel of John, we see this foreshadowed in the earthly life of Christ and in his earthly mission. So think, um, think of the Samaritan woman. Christ comes to the Samaritan woman to draw her into that, into that living water. Christ goes uh, to the tomb of Lazarus to draw him out, um, to, bring, to bring him out. Um, we have these, we can think too of the prodigal son, that the father runs to the, to the son to bring him back into the home. Um, but now Christ, Christ as, as he's speaking, at this point in the Gospel of John, as our minds are turned toward that heavenly reality of, of where Christ is, is, is going to ascend to, that preparation of the father's house and the, the many rooms for us in heaven, um, it's, it's really kind of a beautiful reality of Christ's mission that he does come to us and we do come to him. But in the end, it's, it's he who draws us back into the Father. And it's he who draws us into that everlasting life. And it's he that draws us into that divine friendship. Um, it, it's his work and he accomplishes it. And, and it's a gentle work of the shepherd. It's, it's, not, it's not a sort of um, unnatural thing or, or a po you know, contrary to what we desire, but one that, one that is, is, is most right. Is most home, you know, what, what we long for the most. And it's beautiful that, that it's he who does the drawing, uh, he, he who does the pulling in. I identify, it will be no surprise to either of you, very strongly with Thomas, who says, Master, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Except if I were to say it, it would sound more like, well, where are you? You know, what do you, what do you mean? Where, what, what the heck am I supposed to do with this? Uh, it would it would sound more like that uh, had I been in the room there, uh, and the, the reality the reality is that the Lord has shown us the way, and the way is the way of self gift. Uh, Gaudium et Spes, paragraph twenty four. Huh? How do you like that, Gregory Pine? I could quote magisterial documents too. Gaudium et Spes. He just looked <laughs> it up on his cell phone below the camera. Gaudium et Spes. Please, I was using my laptop. Gaudium et Spes. <laughs> <laughs> Gaudium et Spes 24 says that man, man can only find himself, man can only be fully revealed to himself, man can only find himself by a sincere gift of himself. Um, I mean, this is a beautiful teaching that John Paul II um, pronounced in so many different ways during his pontificate, but that is the, the way to follow Christ, the way that Christ gives us, the way um, to discovering the Lord, the way to understanding in the deepest ways our lives um, and what, what the shape of our life means is to give ourselves away. And it's only by making a gift of ourselves um, that we'll come into a deeper possession of everything that Christ wants to give us. Um, and uh, Christ has shown us this way of self-gift and it's by imitating his perfect giving um, that, that we can find, find him and ourselves, um, and uh, and acquire the deepest again the deepest shape, the deepest meaning, the deepest purposes of uh, of our lives. Any other thoughts this week? Mm -mm. <laughs> I mean, not Father Gregory because he already spoke enough. Uh, That's right. I was really I was really thinking of what I re what I really meant to say was. Father Jacob Bergeron, do you want to look anything up on your cell phone? Or <laughs> no, I don't know. Well, you can see much more of me here, so I, I, can't, I can't sneak it. But <laughs> you did well. You did well reading that line from your laptop. So. I'll teach you the ways.
Thank you. <laughs> uh, with that, let's close with the uh, concluding prayer for the Mass of this day. Let us pray. Graciously be present to your people, we pray, O Lord, and lead those you have imbued with heavenly mysteries to pass from former ways to newness of life. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Be assured of all of our prayers. Please uh, like and share the podcast. Um, maybe if you don't like the podcast, uh, you can share it as a penance. Um, mm. be, be assured of our, our prayers uh, and devotion to you as these days um, continue. God bless. Thanks for listening to God's Planet, a work of the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.